Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good, and one of the reasons why I'm good, Nia, um, is um, uh, listeners, um, uh, we are, uh, as we are wont to do on this podcast, okay? Um, We're We're starting a thing. We're starting a thing. (laughs) I was going to say a series, but every time we start a series, we kind of sort of digress, okay? And we Um, totally know we're going to digress during this thing because that is the nature of this podcast but here's our plan okay today's episode is the first of a number of episodes where we focus on federal government cabinet departments okay um and at at the time of our as we're recording this there's 15 of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all bets are off as to whether all of them will still exist by the time we get done with this, with this, this thing, thing. Uh, or whether there's more added because that happened after 9-11. We well, a new yes, department, right? Like all of a sudden, poofta, a new department when we hadn't had one for 30 years and then uh, we yeah. got a new one. Um, so, so, so we also thought it would be we, we approached this in many, like we could do them alphabetically. We could do them by coolness factor, right? Like we could do, and then we realized what we should really do them is in order, in order of their creation. And while that sounds easy, yeah. it's not because several of them were co-created and a couple of them changed from changed. the name to yes. something else. And so then we were like, oh man. So just bear with us. We are going to generally speaking go in order of their creation that's correct but but be prepared for oh i don't know a surprise digression here and there because it's not really a surprise at all it's us um correct so but that means we get to start with the the state department the state department the department of state except it was not called that no in its (laughs) first iteration to to demonstrate your point, Nia. Okay, when it was first created, um, the what we now call the State Department was entitled the Department of Foreign Affairs, which was created in July of 1789. Okay, now, I need to note for the record here. I my librarian title is librarian is li- public affairs librarian. And it amuses me at some level, public affairs, as opposed to private affairs, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. um, and in this case, foreign affairs. It's, it's, a, it's a funny sort of old school way to think about it, but a Department of Foreign Affairs. Well, what, and what was particularly unusual, Nia, about the Department of Foreign Affairs was that <laughs> initially it had a pretty substantial list of domestic duties. Right. Foreign okay. affairs, foreign, <laughs> I guess, at that time, meaning Kentucky. Yeah, I mean... It, a weird. Very so, weird. Wait, I mean, but, it, wait, can it, we it, first note that yes. Washington signed that into law six days after it was 
after it was approved. By right? Like that didn't get a that didn't get a whole lot of pushback. Oh no 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 no. I mean okay. It, it, yes. So it was very common for the you know the the prominent nations of the world at that time to have designated individuals to represent a country to the rest of the world and you know and again this was one of the chief de defects of the articles of confederation the national or central government had so very little authority that the individual states were largely conducting their own individual foreign affairs with the dominant, if you will, governments of that time. Which is a terrible idea. Oh, it's a terrible idea. France I mean, has a treaty with Georgia and France has a treaty with Virginia and France, and they all say something slightly different like that's just, you're asking for a nightmare. That's a asking, nightmare scenario. It's a nightmare scenario and it would allow, you know, Great Britain and France to basically go ahead and pit one state against another state. Right. You you can't create a new nation where the individual, if you will, subunits of government are competing with one another. Right. Okay? You're asking for civil war at that point. Yeah. Right. So, so uh, yeah. What, go ahead. And and as a side note, <laughs> in so this is July 21st. It's passed. July 27th. It's signed. And then in September of the same year. We get so our first, two months later. We get our first secretary. Yes. Well, and it gets renamed. Yes. It's renamed to the Department of State. State. Because yes. somebody had said Department of Foreign Affairs. Is that a good idea? Should people be having foreign affairs? Should they be having? Shouldn't they be having domestic affairs? Right. Like, I. I it, so it, it changes it, over to Department of State in September, and then. Who gets appointed? I have no idea who the first, wait, was it TJ? It was Thomas Jefferson, yes. And this was actually a, a sign of how politically astute George Washington was as our first president, okay? Washington by and large was nonpartisan though he leaned towards the Federalist Party. But his first cabinet appointment okay secret you know the departmental uh, appointment was a member of the opposition party thomas jefferson was a democratic republican and washington goes ahead and names him because jefferson had so much if you will experience representing the young country overseas yeah because hadn't jefferson spent time before the revolution going to france and being like hey wouldn't you like to hang out with us on our side because yeah particularly because that, that 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 george's nutcase over in england and yeah if we're gonna blah, break blah, blah. yeah if we're gonna break away from you know the brits um will you guys be our friend <laughs> The enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Is the yeah, theory right. of that because France and Germany go way back in their enmity. So France okay, and Great so, Britain. We'll, sorry, we, sorry, yeah, not we'll, Germany. France and yeah, Great we'll, Britain. Sorry. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll get to Germany in this it, story it, in just a few minutes. Way, way later, but uh, time wise, way later. Okay, so TJ, so Tom, sorry, I shouldn't call him TJ, except here in Virginia, that is a fondness 
um, is a fond term. And, and well, I mean, and also us, on this let podcast, us also, Thomas Jefferson was a controversial character who was not who about whom history it has mixed review. Yeah, mixed review. But also on this podcast, let's be very clear, as our longstanding listeners know. Okay, we do take liberties um, with names, and right? it's generally done in effect. Oh, yeah, with fondness, right? I mean, because right. generally. I mean, I mean, because, you know, we spend we spend a lot of time talking about the names of elected officials, judges, bureaucrats. We also spend a lot of time on names of institutions. After a while, okay, there's only so many ways you can go ahead and say, you know, the Department of State. Just say the State Department, right? Okay. Or, you know, Chief Justice John Roberts. You refer to him as? J. Rob. J. Rob. Right. Okay. <laughs> and when you I'm know, being formal, CJJ Rob. <laughs> right. Okay. You know, as my students will know. And it's know, done with fondness. Yeah. As my students will know, okay, there's, there are certain Supreme Court justices who pen so many majority opinions. After a while, I start using derivatives, right? Our good friend, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. Okay, I was never a friend with Oliver Wendell Holmes. <laughs> right. right? Okay. I'm old, but I'm not that not old. That old, right? Okay. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm not old enough to actually remember TJ as D- Department of State. I'm, yes. I'm sure people might think I remember. Okay, so wait, were they always referred to as secretary? The secretary uh, yes. of state? Yeah, yes, the, uh, in, in, in that nomenclature came pretty early on. Okay. Um, uh, so uh, Jefferson was nominated. Uh, by Washington, the Senate confirmed him rather quickly as our first Secretary of State. I'm not surprised by that. He would have been he would have been a lion of his time, right? Like yes. there are people whose names are so well known, whether you like them or not, they are so well known that they that their name has its own gravitas. Yes, and. Um, so it's not surprising chops. to me. I mean, he... let's face it. He earned his chops during the revolution, right? right. Um, you know, he. And this he is was... not to say that on a personal level, he was not somewhat uh, questionable as a historical figure. Oh, sure. I mean, mm. you know, from, you know, his racist views, um, uh, the fact that he had uh, numerous affairs with his slaves. Okay. And did not free them. Uh, it right? did not like, free them. I okay. Mean, um, one could was... argue that's rape. Okay, um, you know that, that that's you know it, he's very controversial. Right. Okay, but what's but, interesting to me in your list is that all of the first few secretaries of state are guys whose names we know. Oh, these James big Madison, shots. James Monroe, John Quincy Adams, Thomas yes. Jefferson. Right. All of those guys are, and they all went on to become president. Yeah. At was the, it just it, like was that the way that you got to be president? Was that you served as secretary of state? At that time, it was viewed as the position, okay, other than president, that gave you the best or most adequate training to be president. Okay. okay? Um, and, um, you know, so much of the young nation was, you know, is this nation going to survive? How do we navigate the fact that both Great Britain and France quite clearly had intentions to, if you will, take over the young country. 
because they didn't think that they didn't think the United States was going to last. Right. So I have a question. Yeah, it wasn't. You said that they did a bunch of stuff, a bunch of different stuff other than what we normally think of as the secretary of state doing now. Yes. And one of those that you have listed in here is the executive and judicial branch commissions. Yes. Is Marbury, Marbury v. Madison because Madison was the Secretary of State? Yes, but before Madison was John Marshall. John Marshall didn't deliver Marbury's Judicial Commission. Why? Because more than likely John Marshall was worried about his nomination to be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. <laughs> So, he had other things on his mind. So a bunch of judicial commissions didn't get delivered. Jefferson gets elected president. He picks Madison to be his secretary of state. Madison says to Jefferson, Mr. President, I have a whole bunch of judicial commissions that were never delivered by my predecessor. What should I do with these? And Jefferson was just like, well, they're all going to be filled by Federalists. And we're Democratic Republicans. So burn them in your fireplace. Yeah, don't deliver them. And William Marbury says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> per the law, my commission was already signed and sealed. Secretary of State Madison, you need to deliver it. And that's how the case becomes known as Marbury versus Madison. Yep. So, so they were still doing that in Madison's time. They were still delivering. Sure. Yes. And were they doing the census then? I mean, did they do the census until, the, 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 until the, the Commerce Department? Yes, the State Department had the responsibility of doing the census. Because I mean, the census is constitutional. You must yes. count the people every 10 yes. years. Like, it's very specific that yes. it has to be done. So if and you're the first department, I guess you're the department that does, you're probably the department that does everything because... You are the first department. You're the right? first department. Okay, and, 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 and listeners, even think about this. Most states, state governments, even today, have uh, secretaries of state. Right. State governments do not have robust foreign affairs operations. <laughs> not generally, and it, we're we're okay with that. <laughs> well, in fact, according to Article One, Section Ten of the U.S. Constitution. They can't. Right. Okay. But, but even most, if they wanted to do friendly negotiating things, they're not allowed to. They're not allowed to. But most states have this position. And in almost every state, Nia, okay, they do basically the organization, okay, and implementation of state government. I mean, the Commonwealth of Virginia has a secretary of state, okay? That's what they do. They do domestic stuff within the state. Yeah, I'm not, and, and I'm not surprised that what ends up being is, and don't take this wrong, secretaries of state out there who may be living and listening to this podcast, which would surprise me greatly. Um, but they're kind of the kitchen drawer where you put everything, yes. and then it gets sort of farmed out to the proper. Yes. Well, at least in the beginning, that's kind of how it was working, right? So. Yeah, they are the kind of sort of glue to state government, right? But then, but then they sort of trough there for a little while, right? You get past those first few oh. sort of fabulously well-known founder when, guys. 
yeah, when John Quincy Adams, who was the son of President Adams, stepped down as Secretary of State in 1825, the department basically had very little role in our federal government until the Civil War. And again, the Civil War demonstrated the importance of having a State Department because during the Civil War, the Secretary of State had a rather prominent role to go ahead and make sure that foreign nations were not participating too much in our nation's civil war. Right, because then it becomes a proxy war for for you know Great other, Britain and France, France and, and Spain, whoever else wants to get in on get the, involved. Right. Yeah. Now, this. Can we it, talk briefly size? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So in 1790, the number of people in this department was eight. Yes. Right? Like him and him and him and him and him and me are going to go to dinner and do everything that we need to do and then go home. In 17, in, excuse me, in 1830. There was 23. There's 23. So they've gone up fourfold. Yes. Right? Fourfold. Ooh. Right? Up to 23 people. Yes. which is smaller than any class you've ever taught at VCU. That is correct. Yes. And then in 1860, they're up to a big whopping 42. 42, yep. Now, I would be willing to bet that the secretarial pool in the main secretary's, secretary of state's office is more than 42 people now. Oh, my goodness, yes. Okay. Right? But they yes. did the entire work of the agency yes. with 42 people. Yes, so I think people need to remember that departments haven't always been these huge, enormous things that we see now where you have thousands and thousands of employees in the various agencies. Yeah, and that's a really good point, uh, uh, Nia, because listeners, you got to remember, you know, well, well until the Civil War, the federal government in the United States was not the largest level of government in this country. In fact, many public administration scholars remind us that after the Civil War, okay, after the fighting in the Civil War, the federal government again shrank, okay? The federal government shrank. Um, so when the Great Depression hit in the late 1920s, early 1930s, Government that the level of government that still did the bulk of public service in this country was state government. Okay, but but the one area where it did grow, which I find fascinating in your notes, is the consular yes. posts. The yes. we will send people to other countries yes. in order to have representatives in those other countries because. I guess until then, it just wasn't a thing, right? Like not a lot of nations had no. permanent consuls in other, or what we think of now as embassies, right? In, right. Other, in other countries. And in 1860, we had 253 yes. consular employees, which is for anybody doing the math at home, like five times what the number of people at home were doing in the Department of Department State, of State. Yeah, that's in the right. same year. It really was focused outward to, to sort of negotiate around the world 
these well, kinds and, and, of relationships. And, and also to have United a presence, and, okay? Right. You know, to fly the flag, right? Okay. The United States foreign policy during that period was decidedly isolationist. But how do you go ahead and make sure that you're not forgotten when the world leaders or, you know, may, you know powerful countries of the world are making decisions? How do you make sure that you're not forgotten? You have consular agents. Okay. Well, I have to assume that they were also doing at least a little bit of the same kind of thing that they do now, where they where they work out commercial concerns oh, and, 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 and they work out, a, you know, like one of the people abroad, like expats. Yeah, that becomes one of the primary focuses of the State Department post Civil War, right? Right. Because the United States economy shifts from agrarian until to industrialization. So, how do we tell companies in the United States, okay, continue to grow and expand. Well, you make sure that there are consumers in other parts of the world that want American goods, right? Well, so, and you work through all the duties and the customs and the and inter all that paperwork, international law implications, okay, contracts, etc. Super helpful, I'm assuming, to have somebody in the in the country who speaks the language. Yes, yes. In case you don't, for whatever yes. reason. Um, so I think that's fascinating that they sort of kaboomed into this in their consular part, sort of. And that, and that, and that creates a division that uh, in the State Department that persisted well into the 20th century, right? Because you had the consular side. Okay, the Foreign Service side versus the State Department creating U.S. foreign policy side, right? Okay. Oh, right. Okay. So, and, and, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later on in the podcast, but you almost end up, you see this divide within State Department personnel. Okay. Are you a Foreign Service, you know, person or are you? you know, uh, a, a State Department policy person, right? right? Who never goes outside the country, okay? Who's, you know, crafting policy that, you know, we folks, you know, out in the hinterlands of, you know, Asia or, you know, you know uh, Europe or, you know, Latin America, Okay, we got to implement this stuff, right? You know, right. we got to interact. We got to interact with the natives, right? Right. You know, we got to make this stuff work. While you guys back in Washington D.C., okay, sort are, of do this pie in the sky, you know? Yeah, right. Okay. And there was this division, right, um, which really doesn't get reconciled until post World War II. Interestingly enough, okay. So who was the who was the Secretary of State during the Civil War? Ah, one of the most prominent, and I think both you and I think um, uh, 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 underrecognized um, uh, American politicians, uh, William Henry Seward. Okay, um, he was Lincoln's Secretary of State, um, and he was Lincoln's, you know, principal advisor on a broad range of wartime decisions um, and in particular made sure that the European nations 
did not officially recognize the Confederacy. Ah, okay. Okay. Because if um, they had, that would have entrenched the war. Oh, that yeah, that, significantly, it, right? Yeah, if I mean, if the South had had gained traction with Europe, there might have been a divided nation at that point. Yeah, because that would have forced the Union then to make a decision: Do we also declare war against any European nation that recognized and or officially supported the Confederacy? Right now. What Wait, many listeners don't was, know, okay, is Secretary of State Seward also did what, Nia? I actually think probably people will know when I say it. You probably heard this in your high school history class, Seward's Folly, what's known as Seward's Folly, or uh, the purchasing of the territory of Alaska from the Russians. The Russians... So the Inuit are hanging around in Alaska being, you know, First Nations people in Inuit. And uh, the Russians walk over and say, hey, we own this place. And the Inuit say, whatevs, because for them, there's not a there's not a fight because that's they don't even recognize sort of Russian ownership. So there's a whole bunch of issues later with that. But but then Russia later was like, we own this big chunk of Alaska and we don't know what to do with it and it's just full of ice and polar bears and we ought to sell it maybe to an american because they like to spend money on crazy stuff look at that whole louisiana purchase thing they bought a giant swamp right so maybe they'll buy this big chunk of ice and seward was like me i want this i want because he was an expansionist right he wanted oh yes he wanted land and it's and by the by alaska was huge we're talking about a huge piece of land and they wanted almost nothing for it, relatively speaking. So they sold it to him. And he, he agrees to the purchase price. And then basically the has to present it to the Senate to right. approve it. Okay. And he just got roasted, right? Okay. Because U.S. senators were like, why are we spending money on this, you know, piece of land that many of us never heard of okay? 7.2 million dollars yes okay which at the time was oh exorbitant and, okay but now when we look back on it you're like really you got all of alaska for 7.2 million two million dollars well done sir well done to you yes but um, at the time the media referred to it as seward's folly okay? and and Andrew Johnson's polar bear garden yes. was one of the other phrases that that it gets yes. that it gets referred to, but it's very forward thinking because turns out there's gold in them thar hills. Um, there's gold under that thar ice, as it were. It, like you, it, it was, and and then future future, holy cow! There's oil under that ice. So, and then post World War II when the nation enters the Cold War with the Soviet Union. It, there's a way to keep an eye on them. I mean, you can't get any closer than, right. the, than the Bering Strait, right. okay? Right, you can literally see Russia from Alaska. Right. Sarah Palin was right about that. Um, okay. So, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's a pretty good, so it turns out to be a very forward-thinking purchase, but I'm sure they thought he was a giant nutcase when he, well, when he came it, back and said, guys, guys, I found this property. You're going to love it. 
it's it's got an ocean view it's super cool in the summer right like it's totally fabulous and they're all like it's it's where it's what right like <laughs> you um how the it's can, not even continuously want it. well the and Can- it's not even continuously attached to us uh, to us and the canadians don't want it okay right the canadians are like <laughs> thanks no thanks we've already got plenty of polar ice cap we don't need more yeah it's a, anyway i just love seward's folly but and i oh, love I mean, that you, what what they it, mocked at the time turned out it turns out congress had no idea what they were talking about it's yeah, been a great it, purchase for the united states yeah cheap I mean, at it, 10 times the cost and and it took nearly a uh, hundred years before uh, alaska became a state i mean right. let me think about it right okay um you know, Seward is also interesting, Dean. I don't know if you uh, 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 knew this. Um, uh, there's a, a book written by historian uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin. Ah, um, love her. Called, uh, Team of Rivals. Yes. Okay. Um, it, it's about how Lincoln put together his cabinet. And I've used that expression, listeners, if you don't know. The cabinet is com- is comprised of all the secretaries of the departments, plus and a few we, other odd. Yeah, usually the vice president, you know, national security council. Council, but back then, yeah. it was Lincoln and about five cabinet secretaries, right? Um, and Lincoln, in making his choices, basically picked everybody who ran against him for the Republican Party presidential nomination in 1860. Right, under the idea that ideas are a good thing and we should bring as many of them to the table as possible. But also, as uh, uh, historian Goodwin points out, okay, by putting them in his cabinet, he effectively muzzled them well, because, that's they, because they couldn't sit outside of his cabinet and criticize him when, he, when they were part of his administration, okay? You know, you went ahead and mentioned, you know, your, your, enemies, your enemy's enemy is your friend. Well, there's a Sun Tzu adage, okay? Keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. Right? Right. So keep an eye brought, on your enemies. So he brought in his rivals, okay? And initially, Seward, like a couple of the other cabinet secretaries, thought that they could go ahead and just run roughshod over Lincoln. But Lincoln demonstrated greater leadership in administrative, if you will, chops, okay, than they thought. And Seward became one of his primary, if you will, advocates, right? Um, But it's just fascinating because he was a member of the team of rivals. Um, But anyways, so after the Civil Civil War, okay, um, the State Department grew, but primarily for economic reasons, right? Right, because there we are, we're an industrial nation, we're a young industrial nation, we are um, manufacturing and trying to send stuff around the world. Yes. And right? 
the, all these guys, all these consular services that are placed in other countries are helping to grease those wheels. That's right. And there was another war at the tail end of the 19th century, the Spanish-American War, okay? Um, and it wasn't much of a war as far as wars go. I have to say that the that really what stands out to me, I know this is so sad, so don't point your finger at me. Um, even though people can't see you, I can see you. Is the thing that stands out to me about the Spanish-American War is that it made Roosevelt's career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? Theodore Roosevelt. That's where Teddy Roosevelt, you know, got his reputation for being, you know, riding into battle and being a hero and, you know, speak softly and carry a big stick and all that sort of, isn't that him? I think that's. Yeah, Rough Riders. Okay. Right. And that whole, that whole jam sort of in my mind comes from Teddy Roosevelt. Now, it's also the war that many Americans should know because that's how the United States established a presence in Southeast Asia, particularly the Philippines. But it's also how we came to, you know, for, and also Guam. But it's also how we came to possess Puerto Rico. Ah. Okay. I mean, so, I mean, it, it, it's an important war. But as far as wars and duration and what they were fighting for, it's usually forgotten. Right. But the Spanish-American War really demonstrated why the State Department was still very important, okay? Because as many went ahead and pointed out, okay, the State Department was essential in regards to maintaining a U.S. presence around the world, even though our stated foreign policy was isolationism. Right. We're mostly internal, but we're keeping an eye on you. Yes. Okay. And we're keeping our finger on the pulse of other nations, because if this thing blows up, we want to know. Yeah. We want to be able to either turtle up and pull back, or we want to know whether we're going to have to get into it or not. You know, so, you know, when Teddy Roosevelt becomes president and he negotiates a peace treaty between Japan and Russia, okay? It's not because Theodore Roosevelt was an expert on either nation. You know, who or was particularly ex- liked either nation. The nation, okay. Um, but you know who were experts? State Department officials, right. right? Teddy gets the glory. He gets the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> but it was the State Department that was like, you know, we need to step in here. But John, because, John Hay, right, Secretary <laughs> of State John Hay, is out there saying, you know, China's pretty important. A lot of people big. Yeah, yeah. Right. right. Um, he, he's also out there um, saying, see, what I think is fascinating is the, the building of the Panama Canal. Yes. Is all sort of um, uh, kudoed down to Theodore Roosevelt. But that took an enormous amount of negotiation and like working with the French and working with the pan, you know, the Panama citizens and how to uh, well, I mean, it, a lot it, of drama. It, it, and the Panama in Canal at that time was owned by the Colombian government, right? 
So, I mean, you're talking about some really intricate, intricate negotiations just to go ahead and, and, and allow the United States to go in and do what the French were not able to do, which was to create the canal. Yeah, but didn't we create Panama first? Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, the, like there's some really, you know, but that's all negotiation and diplomacy and all that kind of work. Like, we didn't go in there and fight. Well, there may have been a little bit of fighting. But anyway, um, so what I'm also fascinated about is, so we go from roughly uh, internal, internal, um, uh, uh, no, sorry, internal um, employees. Thank you. That's the word I was yes. trying to find. Of 42. And now we're up to, in 1920, we're up to 1,128 employees with a budget of $2,800,000. Yes. So we're starting, <laughs> we're starting to recognize this whole utility of the State Department, Department. as as this sort of multifunction institution. It does internal stuff, it does external stuff. It tries to prevent us from getting involved in other people's wars. And then along comes World War I. Yes. Where yes. nobody gets to stay out of it. Hence the name World War, right? No one gets to stay, I mean, like tiny little countries get to stay out of it. And some people declare themselves out of it, Switzerland. We are not part of this war, leave us alone. We're not interested in, you know, in your warmongering, mongery stuff. But everybody else gets embroiled. And the State Department had a huge role, Nia, in ending the war, okay? You know, and again, a president gets to claim the glory. Woodrow Wilson, you know, the chief architect of the Treaty of Versailles to end World War I, right? But according to most historians, okay, the State Department had a huge role, okay, in vetting what all the other nations would require to end the war. Can we talk about that? That's yes. a that's a huge so I think that that happens all the time when you see the, you know, the treaty signed Yeltsin, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Yalta, yes. Yalta yeah. right, where you get Stalin and you get Churchill and you get Roosevelt and they're all signing stuff and that's wonderful. But that is the, that is the culmination of hundreds of hours of diplomats from every country working to be like, okay, you'll take this and then they go to another room and they say okay they say they want that what do you think about this and the other person's like oh, i'll give them a little bit of this but i want that in return like it's hundreds of hours of that where you it's are trying to figure out what everybody can live with yes. line by line what everybody can live with or at least everybody that you care about because in that particular instance germany did not get a vote no, right, they, know, because they lost, they, and yeah, so they, they didn't lost. Get, they were the instigators of the war, so we're going to punish them, right? right? Which, okay. as we see in World War One, turned out very poorly a few years later. That's right. But that's what happens when you don't take into account what the losers need as well as what the winners need. Winners need. That's right. So that was a dip diplomatic failure. the The diplomatic yes. failure after World of World War One was that there was another World War, right? So. Because, you know, if they, but, but I don't want to, 
I do think you're right that presidents, it's the president's name that gets signed on something. And so we're like, oh, President Roosevelt, blah, 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 or President this or President that. No, 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 no. Some guy named John Agamemnon sat in a room with yeah. another guy named Jean Ogembo from <laughs> France. And I don't know how you would say it in German because I'm terrible with languages. But anyway, well, actually, Ogembo is German, right? So, okay. I mean, you know, so the, the, his cousin, he, but yes. like they sit around and they have these discussions that go on for hours about. Okay, can we put an and there? Do we have to put an or there? What do we need? How do we make sure that these and, are? And by the way, this region needs to go to this country. Right. Okay. But so many and, of them speak this language that you that you also need to. Okay, and we negotiate want access, that in. And, we we yeah. want access to this port, and oh yeah, by the way, okay, you know you can't go ahead and cut off this group. Okay, it, it's painstaking, right? It's painstaking. And, and frankly, presidents have neither the time nor the patience for work like that. No. That is right? a special kind of civil servant. Yes. Diplomats are a special kind of civil servant because if you think that Anthony Blinken, who I think isn't he current, he's the current secretary. He's the current of state. secretary of state. Yes. If he I would be willing to bet that there are numerous times when what he wants to do is leap to his feet and smack the crap out of the person he's talking to. <laughs> because they have just said something either so wildly offensive or so wildly ridiculous that it's not even a start it's a non-starter well, but I mean, he has to sit many, there and say take it. this is part of the negotiation they say something outlandish i don't respond they then say okay well maybe i'm being a little outlandish and i say yes you are and then we get to have a a discussion that's well, a whole think, skill set think about and think about the talent you need to have to be able to go ahead and interpret, okay, something that is said publicly by another nation's diplomats, but to figure out what it actually means in reality, right? You right. know, you know, Russia says we need the uh, Donbass region of the Ukraine, or right? we will drop a nuclear weapon on. Okay, now. On Kiev, and you're like, they're not going to drop a nuclear weapon on Kiev, right? That okay, but the Secretary of State can't go ahead and say that publicly, right? Okay, because then that puts Russia into a box or a bind. So instead, he's got to come back with carefully worded, okay, Russia, you can't do that. And then after the press conference, goes ahead and talks to his counterpart in Russia. To discuss what really needs to go on so that this whatever is going on in the ukraine is going to end right? right okay well and the other the other um thing that i think that we miss sometimes with secretaries of state is that there are also things they just simply can't do they're yes. not allowed by american law to do certain yes to do certain things so they have to stay within the confines of American law. They can't break American law to solve a treaty. Like they, they, that's not how, oh, it, ending this would be, we would just give you New Jersey, fine, we'll just do that. Like they can't, they can't do that. Like if Canada said, oh, we're gonna require Maine or we're gonna go to war with you, they can't just say, 
okay, well, we don't really care about Maine anyway, so go ahead and take it. Like, first yeah, of we, all, they yeah, care about Maine. Everybody cares about Maine. Maine is lovely. Lots of lobsters. Um, but also, you can't just, you can't just give, like, you know what I mean? Like, they can't, that's not part of American law that they have any power over. So they have to be, they have to negotiate within that. And, and so do all the other diplomats in other countries. They they can threaten whatever they want, but if they're not in charge of whatever that thing is, they can't do it. Uh, yeah, it's it, it's all very fascinating to. Yeah, and 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 again, we tend to focus on a single president or prime minister, as the case may be. Okay, but at the end of the day, okay, if you listeners, if you take nothing else from this podcast episode, right? Um, State Department officials, nameless, faceless bureaucrats, okay? We have enormous Um, respect for those people. (laughs) Okay, they went to school, they learned the language, they learned the customs, the culture, okay? Um, They are the representation of the United States to the rest of the world. Yes, Right. and we want them to be the best of the best. Yeah, we we want them to be the... Yeah, we want them to, okay, understand that no matter what the U.S. foreign policy is of a particular day, we want them to be able to go ahead and represent the country to the rest of the world, okay? Which is why um, it kind of infuriates me that they are no longer as powerful a a group as they were. Because they negotiated World War II, the end of World War II. Whether you think how that was done was wise or not, that was super complicated. And it took a long time. And it was, and then immediately they're faced with a Cold War between the United States and Russia, right? So now they're trying to negotiate that that sort of delicate relationship. I mean, sorry, my mind immediately leaps to the Cuban Missile Crisis. And how that's a diplomatic, right? Because you have Russia on one side saying, we're going to put missiles in Cuba. And you have Kennedy on the other side saying, oh, heck, you are. And what that required was a lot of backdoor phone call. But what's interesting is. How can we make sure that these things don't What's interesting is starting with President Kennedy, the State Department began to have less of a role in U.S. foreign policy. Right. It shifts to, it shifted to Robert Kennedy, didn't it? His attorney general and like other people in the administration. It. it, Kennedy basically relied upon um, uh, uh, trusted advisors in the White House. So Bobby Kennedy and a handful of others, because from Kennedy's perspective, the State Department, much like the Department of Defense and the CIA, were entrenched in their thinking, and the Cuban Missile Crisis required different types of thinking. Okay, Maybe I I would argue, in fact, that if the diplomatic corps had been involved in the Cold War, that it might not have gone on until Reagan. Like, I mean, Kennedy. That's a. There's another twenty years of this mess. Well, I mean, and that's a foreign policy argument that we could have at another time. time but adult beverages, but but well, what's really interesting is to your point, 
what you begin to see with, you know, uh, Nixon and Ford basically relied upon the National Security Council, particularly a single person, Henry Kissinger, right? Yeah, um, how did he become? Uh, well, he was well, first secretary, first he was Secretary of State, but then he became uh, uh, chairperson of the National Security Council, okay? Okay. And again, the idea of the National Security Council was the uh, 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 the head of the National Security Council would uh, re uh, report directly to the president and would be responsible for managing and coordinating the State Department, the Department of Defense, the CIA. So to force those rather three potent agencies to work together, you know, because the concern was left to their own devices, they're going to engage in bureaucratic politics. You know, they're going to protect their turf and they're not going to work with one another, right? But in the process, the one department that probably suffered the most with the emergence of the National Security Council was the State Department, okay? Uh, because successive presidents began to uh, rely pretty exclusively on the National Security Council system. Um, and you see this pretty prominently with Bush 41. Now, by all accounts, Bush 41, okay, put together an excellent foreign affairs staff. I mean, it, I mean, it was Bush 41 that we saw the end of the Cold War. The Berlin Wall came down, right? Okay, the Berlin Wall came down, right? right? But nevertheless, the State Department was not the pro was not the most prominent department or agency um, in U.S. foreign policy making. Okay, even though Secretary Baker was a personal friend and rather powerful individual yes. but we don't see the power of the agency that's right that's okay correct. so because so, we've had some pretty powerful not powerful but maybe charismatic or maybe i don't know exactly no, how no, i mean I, I, I think powerful or effective secretaries of state madeline um, albright comes to mind okay well condoleezza rice condoleezza rice another okay okay uh, james baker uh with bush 41 um but the, the department overall um, begins to uh, lose its prominence. Um, and um, in, in, in some would argue um, that's somewhat of a shame because again, you know, we have State Department officials stationed around the world. Right. I, you know, I think it's a shame we don't utilize them as much as we could because they are highly trained individuals you don't you don't get in you're not in charge of an embassy you're not the consul in a country at just randomly like that's a the diplomatic core you 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 start low and you work your way up it's a it's a you get to you get to those positions by learning how to do those jobs 
in very intense ways. You go from countries that are friendlier to countries that are unfriendlier as you work through your way through your career so that you build this incredible skill set. And it's too bad to me that, um, and, and I say this with all love in my heart for DHS, but like the cool kid, you know, on the block isn't necessarily the right answer in every situation. Or the new kid, yeah, you know, as the Eagle song once said, you know, the new kid in town's not always the best kid, right? right? Um, you know, the you know the 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 old standbys might get replaced, but the new kid may not necessarily be the best fit. But to your point, I mean, starting in 1924, when Congress passed the Rogers Act, um, the Department of State, okay created what's known as the foreign service system. And they made merit, not politics, the basis for appointment and promotion. Right. Right. You didn't have to know a guy. You had to be good at your job. And it took a, it, it took a couple generations, but the State Department moved away from, okay, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant elites, okay, being the only individuals in prominent State Department positions too, who had the best education, who had the best training, who had the knowledge of particular areas, you know, who was on some desk, okay, in some backwater country, okay, in blah, blah, blah part of the world, but demonstrated that they were a good foreign service agent right they could solve okay. problems diplomatically okay. and you know work out did, a solution to everyone's satisfaction you know they could pay attention to what was going on in that country and they helped the united states avoid a foreign service problem or crisis okay um and that arose with the rogers act in 1924 right post-world war ii the hoover commission went ahead and reorganized the State Department, right? Um, to focus more on geographical deaths, right? So, you know, we need to have, you know, a unit in this part of the world or that part of the world, okay, right. et cetera. Um, so in many ways, the State Department, um, because it's been reorganized, because of changes in personnel system, you know, we, we get a more representative State Department and listeners. Okay, and, I'm not- And efficient. I, and it's much more efficient. Um, so, you know, we start getting more, you know, people of color and women in positions other than clerical responsibilities, right? right. Um, and, uh, but it took some time. Unfortunately, Nia, as you pointed out, uh, post 9-11, uh, the State Department, okay, is is now, um, you know, you know, if you think about the the pecking order of U.S. foreign policy making, um, you know, it's in competition with one, the National Security Council, two, the State Department, three, the Department of Homeland Security. Let's not forget the longstanding rivalry between the State Department and the CIA. 
right? Right, for information gathering. Yeah, information gathering, right? Because okay. State Department was ideally positioned to gather information. And, and has, um, been, has been gathering intelligence the longest, okay, of right. any department in our federal government. Right. <laughs> <I mean. laughs> Probably since TJ. Yeah, right. Okay. I would imagine he made notes about who was who and who. And see, the thing about it is, is that those what what I love about agencies, excuse me, about um, embassies and consuls and things like that in other countries is they live there. Yes. So they know. And, and I'm not going to try to be ugly here, but I'm going to be try to be honest. They know who's sleeping with who. They know who's fighting with who. They know whose mama hates who mama. Like they know all that stuff because they live there and they go to the market and they go to the bank and they go to the, you know, all these different places where they overhear. Oh, you know, he's got a young girlfriend on the side. We see her sometimes in the marketplace. Ooh, right. And then they're like, oh, who knew? Guy had a chippy. Right now, you know a thing. You know a thing. You live there. Okay. You take note of who's showing up at state dinners. And okay. where they sit. Where they sit. Which okay. is huge, right? How far are they from the leader? They used to be right next to him, but now they're at the other end of the table. Uh-oh. Okay. Or, There's trouble you know, in paradise. Or, okay. They're, you know, who's not getting invited to state dinners now, which means they've lost status or rank. Yeah. Okay. Within that country's political and government leadership. Okay. Um, you know. And the CIA isn't always well placed to know that because it depends on how long they've had an agent there. Yes. Right. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, um, you know, a lot of, a, a lot of diplomacy is paying attention to cultural norms and yep. patterns of behavior that most of us on a daily basis would be like, oh, so that, you know, there's a new person, oh man. Okay, but the State Department would be like, yes, Ooh. there is a new person. And okay. where did this person come from? That's right. Okay. Which, is why, which is why State Department officials in Russia were not surprised by Putin. No. They no. knew Putin was coming. The rest of the world was like, who's this Putin dude, right? Because he hadn't really been nationally known. But the people who knew him in Moscow were like, oh, no, that guy's an up and comer. Yeah, that's right. And okay. so that's the kind of thing. And also, it, um, I think the State Department officials in a country are the first people to know whether it's going to be unstable soon. Like they're the first person, people yes. to be able to say, we need to get all the Americans out of here because it's about to be it's about to be ugly and we want to protect. That's why you see those orders. So I would encourage people, um, and I'm going to link to it, uh, the State Department website yes. has a fantastic history of the State Department. It also has things like the alerts about different countries and what you need to know before you travel the world. They will tell you if a country is perhaps not quite so friendly to Americans right now and you might want to rethink your summer break travel plans um they do a they do a, that kind of thing they're a very uh hands-in agency um they're not super super mysterious about no the kind I mean, of information they give yeah. out they sort of yeah i mean uh, listeners if you uh, ever travel overseas one of the first in, or you're thinking about traveling overseas 
one of the first websites I would tell you to go ahead and check is the State Department. Also, don't they, they issue passports? Uh, Aren't they the issuing agency for pass? I think yes, they are. Yes, yes, yes. I think they are. Wait a minute. We're both now scrambling to go ahead and check this. We are because we're curious about who issues passports. The Department of State. Yeah, it is the yes. Department of State. Okay. Good. Yes. We were both remembering correctly and then second guessed ourselves. But yeah, so. I mean, they are responsible for your safety in that sense. Like they they give you a well, passport yeah, I mean, and then it, they try to give you information about where to go, where not to go. There are places where they will say, do not go here. We cannot get you out if you go, right? Like if you go to Iran and you go up into the hills because you want to meet the, you know, the lovely people who live in the hills of of Iran, we may or may not be able to extract you from, and, from and, that and region. And in listeners, uh, if you do travel overseas um, and you uh, uh, do um, run into some legal difficulties um, while you're traveling overseas, um, you're going to want to know. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the phrase you need to learn in any foreign language for any country you're going to visit is where is the American embassy? Embassy. <laughs> That's right. Or can you take me to the American embassy? Right? Like I I, I want to meet with uh, a US embassy representative. Right. I will and, and at that point say I will say nothing else. Okay. Just <laughs> exactly. Right? Like, okay. So they're they're basically your international first lawyer. Yes. They're going to get in there and try to help you. So we yes. do we we love the the State Department. I I would love um, to see uh, someone as flashy as like Seward to to come in, but I don't know if if we do that anymore. Like if our government officials are really flashy like that. The U.S. federal government me has become so president centered. Yeah, that okay. they, they probably um, wouldn't they probably wouldn't appoint or you know ask for someone to be approved who was too flashy because then it would take away from their I mean you got to think about you know uh, some of our more recent presidents who have appointed really effective and well-known secretaries of state these are presidents who generally are very comfortable in their own skin right okay um and have no problem sharing the limelight right um, you know, so when, you know, Bill Clinton appointed Madeleine Albright, nobody ever thought that Bill Clinton suffered um, for um, or had a lack of ego. <laughs> right. Oh, of all the things. That is not a thing right. he lacks. Okay. You know, Bush 41, okay. I mean, Bush 41 was the former director of the CIA. Yeah, he was completely comfortable in his own skin. So skin. having James Baker was just yeah, a, was, a plus. Yeah, right. You know, in Bush 43, I mean, he quite, even to this day, is willing to acknowledge, okay, that he had a whole bunch of people in his cabinet who were smarter than him. And he was cool with that, right? Oh, Congress you know, is brilliant. Okay, you know, from, you know, his vice president, Dick Cheney, to, you know, Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. I mean, quite obviously, he was, yeah, I'm, I'm good, right? But <laughs> But that requires a certain type of personality. It does. Right? 
and you have to get out of their way and let them do their jobs jobs right which is also hard for some presidents some presidents are micromanagers and they want to in 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 in, in, you and i had this conversation in a previous podcast episode uh, with our colleague uh, bill newman right you know presidential personality can have a huge impact okay on whether or not the presidents will allow their cabinet secretaries to do the job, right? Right, um, and you know, and, and and some aren't willing or able to concede the limelight. Okay, they're yeah. just not. Okay, yeah, not. Um, it's either not constitutionally in there, or they view the presidency as the center of the universe, and everything and, should revolve around it. And and we sometimes make that mistake as the public, the media certainly does, right? What's the uh, president think about that? Who cares? You know, the, you know what's the president's foreign policy? <laughs> I mean, Turns out you should be asking the State Department. Yeah, you know that's right. Okay, um, but anyway, hopefully, hopefully. But uh, uh, I, I really enjoyed this conversation um, and. And, and, and in doing the research, I was reminded of how the State Department initially had domestic duties. And we tend to forget that. Departments as institutions are created to do certain kinds of work, but the institution will change over time. Yep. Okay. Um, and um, and we saw this with the State Department. And if I had to venture a guess, Nia, we're probably going to see this with a number of other departments. Um, oh, that, yeah. You know, Where they, they, shift, they shift priorities, they reorganize, they change their scope. Um, you know, yeah. they, were, they were once prominent and now, you know, you would be hard pressed to... You know, to you know, to actually list them as one of the fifteen, you know, <laughs> <departments>. right, <laughs> right, and then you have tough time finding people who want to do the job. Yeah. Do, you want me to be what? No, thank you. you. You want me to be the Secretary of Labor? Do you have any we, idea what a pay cut that is for me, and what a responsibility <laughs> cut that is for me? We yeah. still have a Department of Labor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Labor, we're just picking on you because we love you. Yes. All right. All right so we will we will be back with our next um, and these will air in order, we hope. But if yes. they don't, this was the first. Yes. And uh, and we will be back with the next one. Sounds good, Nia. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.